Good morning. It's good to see you guys this morning. Um, you know, if you got a Bible, and you should, turn to Acts chapter 18, please. Acts chapter 18, we're going to go through verses uh, 18 through 23. And it is not an exceptionally long passage this morning, so we're going to read all the way through it once, and then we're going to take it a paragraph at a time. So I'm going to wait just a moment for you to, to get there in your Bibles. Uh, by the way, I want to encourage you. If you are not able to use your cell phone or tablet only as a Bible while you're here, I want to encourage you to please consider keeping it in your pocket and using a physical Bible to follow along with, uh, with the, the passages. Um, I was listening the other day to a sermon by um, a fellow pastor, and I love how every time he mentions a scripture, you can hear this. In the congregation. I just, I love that. that. That's the sound of people searching diligently in the word. Yes, I understand that we all have it on our phones and you can scroll. It's just not as cool sounding. I'm just saying, it's just not. If there was a sound of like or something, then maybe it'd be a little different. But I just, I love it. I, and, and I know it's a temptation for me, even as a preacher. If I'm sitting there listening to somebody and I'm looking on my phone, I'm like, let's just check Facebook real quick. You know, just so beware. Beware, the temptation is real. So, um, anyway, I know I usually put the passages up here. So, some of you are like, why even bring a Bible? The passages are always up there. But listen, sometimes, if you, especially if you have a different translation, there might be something in that passage that will jump out at you because you're reading it in the NIV or the King James or the New King James or something. And it will be different from what's up there. And it will give you a chance to maybe something else will resonate with you. So, I just want to encourage you. I wanted to lead with that. Um, and then, um, yeah, we'll go from there. So let's jump in. Um, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. As Sencre, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave, of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Let, let's pray. Father God, there's a lot of narrative here in this passage today, and I just ask that, uh, that the stuff that you have, I believe, led me by your Holy Spirit to pull out of it is stuff that we need to hear. And uh, God, I just ask for mercy right now as my voice seems to be having a hard time, so just pray that uh, mercy for the voice and mercy for the ears that hear. Um, and God, I ask that each one of us will draw something um, powerful and worth keeping out of this, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, all right, friends, while the, while the kids are finding the eight hidden bingo pictures in the slide, um, we're going to do a quick recap. Uh, last week, we looked at Paul's time spent in Corinth, and we talked about some of the sacrifices that were made in order for the gospel to be preached to the Gentiles. And this week, we're going to look at a pretty, a pretty good leg of Paul's second missionary journey. And, and although I'm not 100% on the timeline, it's a little bit fuzzy to me. Um, but at the moment, though, this passage contains a lot of of activity and time and motion and geography, just a few sentences. But there's definitely some very important stuff that's contained in this text, and we shouldn't miss the amazing Christian example 
that Paul sets. Uh, when we think about everything that he went through and everything that he took on for the sake of, of the saving message of Jesus to be spread, we ought to be encouraged by Paul's seriousness about his mission. You know, his, his, his incredibly evangelistic lifestyle was visible to anyone who spent time with him. And his life was one of absolute integrity. You know, his, in the, I want to I define that, but sometimes I think we don't actually understand what integrity means. Okay, one of the, the, the phrases that gets battered around a lot, and it's true, is integrity means being the same even when nobody's looking. Right? But I think in Paul's case, it's in the sense that his faith was fully integrated, meaning integral, integrity, into everything that he did. He wasn't compartmentalizing anything in his life. And when a person takes their faith in the Lord Jesus seriously, it won't make sense for us to try to compartmentalize our faith. You know, we don't want to, don't, we don't want to separate it from our, our work life or for uh, away from our family or our friends or, or anything else. It all becomes subject. Everything in our lives are subject to the sphere of Christ. And Paul understood that. You know, his response was to reject anything in his life that prevented him from putting the proper focus on Jesus and on the kingdom of God. And since that's the subject of today's message, I'd like to ask each of you up front to ask yourself this question. How serious am I about my faith relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ? How serious am I? And we're going to come back around. I want you to think about that. That's the topic that we're going to keep recircling to. So starting again at verse 18. After this, meaning the, the experience we talked about last week where he was dragged before the proconsul Gallio, uh, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencre he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Now remember that, that Priscilla or Prisca and Aquila were a married couple. They were both tent makers. And uh, they'd fled Rome when the emperor began persecuting Jews. And, and now they were Christians who were partnered with Paul. And so Paul was, was making tents with them. And he was staying in their home. And he was spending about a year and a half there. He was working with them. And, and he was preaching the gospel from the house of a guy named Titius Justus. You remember him? He lived next door to the synagogue, right? And anyway, uh, uh, Paul was led to leave Corinth after this time. And he was sent by God to Syria. And that involves sailing straight across part of the Aegean Sea to this port at, at uh, Ephesus. But he went there, bringing Priscilla and Aquila along. And there's something here in the text that we're going to camp out on for a few minutes. And that's the last part of the sentence. Okay? It says, at Sencre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. What in the world is that about? And no, I was not under a vow when I did this. <laughs> Oh, okay, there, there's some biblical background for this, and we're, we're going we're gonna to look at it briefly, but I only want to scratch the surface here because it's not the main point, okay? But first of all, what is a vow? Anybody? A, it's a solemn promise, right? It's a really important promise that we make. We make vows, for instance, when we get married, right? It, it, it's saying that we're either going to do something specific or we're not going to do something specific, 
you know, or in some cases both. Now that's kind of vague, but when a, when a Jewish man makes a vow, it's usually something that's considered sacred, like a promise before God. So what does it mean that Paul was under a vow? You, know, you guys probably know, um, as, as much as I wish I had as many uh, original thoughts as probably show up in things, the fact is I read commentaries quite a bit when I'm preparing for sermons because there's a lot of people a lot smarter than me that have been doing this a lot longer that have come up with some great stuff. And most of the commentaries that I looked at, um, they said something about a thing called a Nazarite vow that you're probably familiar with. It shows up in the Old Testament. Um, you probably remember Samson's parents were told by the angel to put him under a Nazarite vow. Um, basically, a person would promise for an allotted time, which could be any amount of time, uh, from like a day all the way up to like a lifelong thing. He would not cut his hair. He would not eat any grapes or anything derived from grapes, including wine, which is, you know, very, that was ubiquitous back then. They would mix it with their water to be good for their stomachs. Um, and so, you know, that, that's, that's giving something up, so to speak. It's, it's pretty specific, a Nazarite vow. It's also pretty simple. Don't cut your hair. Don't eat grapes, right? No raisin cakes, no wine. But this passage really doesn't say anything about the type of vow that Paul had made, only that he cut his hair. And so what this means, uh, likely means, is that Paul's vow had ended. Because whenever they ended a vow, they would usually shave their head and they would, they would clip their nails. Which I know sounds kind of strange, but that's, that's what they would do. That was, that was their sign that they'd completed the term of their vow or their promise. Now again, we don't know what his promise was. All right? uh, we also don't know how long it's gone on. But we do know that Paul had placed himself under a vow, which was his own voluntary decision to make a promise before God to either do or not do something. And so here's what I glean from that. You and I need to take our commitment seriously. We Christians need to take our commitment seriously. So you ask, well, so how does that follow? Listen. I cannot speak for the whole world, but sometimes it seems like a lot of us in the church are spiritually flying by the seat of our pants. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, does that make sense? We see ourselves as, I don't know if we actually see this in our minds, but we act like we're safely ensconced in the giant beanbag chair of eternal life, you know, and we're sitting there eating popcorn and waiting for Jesus to come back. But many of us just take things as they come, you know, a day at a time without putting any thought into what's next or to where God is leading. And because of that, I think we don't tend to take risks. Now, there's, a, there's this old business analogy. I want to share this with you. But first, I want to show you this beautiful picture uh, of, of what I had for lunch one day last week. <laughs> this is a glorious Skillet. Some of you saw this on Facebook. That's how proud of this I was. Um, glorious skillet of ham and eggs, 80, 90 grams of protein. I don't know, there's a lot. There's a dozen egg whites, three yolks, a handful of cheese, some milk, and about a quarter pound of shredded lean ham. Oh, it was so tasty. It was delicious. And I'm not showing you this to make you envious, although you should be. I'm showing you this because the business analogy actually has to do with ham and eggs. It's sad that Craig is not here today because Craig's, one of his favorite sayings is, boy, if we had some ham, we could have some ham and eggs if we had some eggs. <laughs> um, but there's this story. There's a pig and a chicken having a discussion about the farmer's breakfast of ham and eggs. And the chicken comments that she contributed something to that lovely meal. But the pig responds, 
that the chicken may have participated, but there was another pig that had to make a commitment. Right? There's a big difference, folks, between a contribution and a commitment. To say, I'll give a buck to a homeless guy, that's a little contribution. But to sponsor a child through World Vision for 18 years, that's more of a commitment. You know, in the, in the latter situation, you're putting a little bit of skin in the game. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing at all wrong with making a one-time contribution to something because some contributions can only be made once. For example, Hebrews 9 tells us that Jesus was sent by the Father, the one and only Son of the Father, sent to be our Savior, and His death on the cross, the author of Hebrews says, was a once-for-all sacrifice to pay for the sins of mankind. And the Father raised him from the dead once for all. Jesus is never to die again. Now think about that. It's powerful stuff. But when you consider what Jesus did, ask yourself, Am I just a participant in the Christian faith or am I committed to Jesus Christ as he was committed to me? Am I the chicken or the pig? I want to say this, friends. There's, there's a difference between making a sacrifice and being a sacrifice. One of my favorite, and as you probably know because I quote it a lot, from this, uh, this pulpit, but one of my favorite passages is Romans 12, especially the first couple of verses. The whole thing is great, but I love the first couple of verses where Paul writes, therefore, brothers, I'm just going to do verse 1, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, uh, I'm sorry, I've got it memorized in the, King, uh, the uh, NIV, so let me read it from here. I call on you through the compassions of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God, which is your reasonable Service. By the way, this is from the literal standard version, I believe. Your ESV is a little different. Being a living sacrifice means staying consecrated to God. It means offering ourselves again every day to do the will of God. And so I think it benefits us then as Christians to consider doing what Paul did in making a vow. As believers, we do well to make specific commitments to the Lord, whether temporary ones for a specific reason or lifelong ones. One example might be making the choice to set your alarm earlier than you want to. You know, uh, for instance, I, I'm trying to do that every school day this semester whenever I have to take Evie to school. I'm trying to get up about probably an hour and 15 minutes before I used to <laughs> last semester. Um, and it's not always easy to get out of bed. But the time that I get to spend with God in the mornings before anybody else is up, although Shannon sometimes is up too, but she's very quiet. Um, it, it's amazing. It has been so valuable. Just having that, that time to spend with the Heavenly Father is really, really important. Um, perhaps, you know, cho choosing to give up desserts for a few weeks because you find yourself maybe craving sugar more than Scripture. You need to teach the flesh who's boss, you know. Sometimes I, I think, I think that, that we sorely lack this in American Christianity. Did, did you know prayer is not really an option? 
I mean, I think most of us probably know there's a couple of instructions in Paul's letters about being constantly in an attitude of prayer. Um, But in the Sermon on the Mount, in three verses, back to back, Jesus says, and when you pray, not if, when you pray, it's expected. I think most Christians are aware of that, but did you know there also appears to be an expectation of fasting sometimes? You know, in the next chapter of, uh, of, excuse me, it's the same chapter of Matthew, it's just a few verses later, Jesus also says to his disciples, and when you fast, it sounds like there's some expectation there. I mean, it's good for Christians to consecrate specific blocks of time to commune with the Lord or to officially take up or lay down a habit for a while for the sake of growing closer to God. And it's been, I'll tell you, it's been a long time since I've gone on a real fast. That's probably fairly obvious. But, but in those times of extra commitment, I, I always feel extra blessed. It's something valuable that I think we need to consider doing. I have a, I have a friend that I ask every week or two uh, if he's been getting up early to spend time with the Lord because that's something that he said he wanted to do. I, I think that we need to be accountable to someone about these commitments that we make. You know, Scripture leads me to believe that, that the Lord honors our attempts to commit ourselves to Him in ways beyond just the, the standard walk. So I want you to be encouraged, guys. Make specific commitments to the Lord for the sake of your own growth and then be accountable to someone. Find someone that you can ask to ask you, hey, how you doing in this? Have you been avoiding those websites? Have you been spending time in the Word? Have you been... Uh, putting less money in the swear jar, or whatever the case may be. I think it, it helps. You know, it, it tells somebody, this is a goal that I have. I want to I achieve this. Because when you tell somebody, that person, if you give them permission to, will ask you about it. And it's nice to have that. It's one of the things we're called to do. So, Having somebody ask you if you're sticking to your commitment is a good thing. And I want us to just be mindful of Paul's example and know that even, even as solid a believer as he was in his everyday life, Paul still made special vows to the Lord from time to time, and we can too. It's good for us. My dad uh, used to refer to fasting as a way to show God you're serious. And while God knows our hearts, I think it makes sense. It's a way of reminding ourselves that we're serious, you know, for what it's worth. Uh, we're going to read the next part here. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, meaning Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now, this is not a big surprise, because this is what Paul does everywhere he goes, right? But what's interesting to me, though, is the next line. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Isn't that odd? I mean, often it seems like Paul's going to hang around even when people are, are, are wanting him dead. And here they're practically begging him to stay, and he's declining. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. And I think this passage shows a great example, once again through Paul, of following God's will. You might ask, well, how so? It doesn't specifically say that God led Paul to leave, but that seems likely you know, after all, if, someone, if someone's asking you to stay, doesn't it make sense, you know, to stay? It doesn't make much sense to go unless God is calling you to go, right? 
I mean, because really, think about it. Paul could have just, he could have set up shop right there in Ephesus. But he knew that's not where he was supposed to stay. Paul followed God's will rather than what seems to make sense from our, our limited human perspectives. And I think we should all follow that example and seriously consider God's will. You know, in everything we do, we ought to take his will into consideration. First of all, we are entirely subject to the sovereign will of God, whether we like it or not. I mean, he is in charge. God is in control. It's not just a song. Okay? So ignoring that would be supremely ignorant on our part. In fact, um, the way that Paul speaks of God's will reminds me of a passage in James 4. And that apostle wrote this. He said, come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. He says, what is your life? For you're a mist that appears for just a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And I think that's kind of what Paul's taking into account here. He, he doesn't know if he'll be back. So instead of saying, I'll come back in a little while... He gave God glory for having the authority over the future. And we also see a good example in that Paul is walking in God's revealed will and that the Lord had very clearly shown him where to go and what to do next. And he faithfully pursued that calling. He did that day by day. I think he was very in tune with the Holy Spirit, knowing what he was supposed to, to do and where he was supposed to go and when. Now, you and I may not have as clear a calling as Paul, and perhaps we're not as, as learned as he was with regard to listening to the Spirit's guidance. But we have something that even Paul didn't have. And that, friends, is the rest of the New Testament. Paul didn't have that yet. You know, at this point in his ministry, there, he had only written, I think, three letters. Possibly only one, Galatians. He wrote First and Second Thessalonians while he was on his second missionary journey. So we don't know when God revealed all the things to him that were revealed to him yet. Um, there were no written gospels yet. Nor had, had you know, Peter, Jude, John, any of these other guys written most of their letters either. So, so we have an advantage in that we can read God's own breathed out instructions to us on what to believe and on how to live. We have that advantage over the Apostle Paul. And if we're not taking it seriously, guys, that is a massive problem. If we're just ignoring this amazing gift that we have. Now, after all, Jesus said, he told his disciples, if they loved him, they would keep his commandments. It's another one I quote a lot from the pulpit, but we need to be reminded of this. If we're not obedient to Christ, what does that say about how we feel about him? I'm fairly certain that his words to the disciples, in many, many cases, including that one, apply to you and me as his disciples. If we love Jesus, we will be walking in his revealed will as we understand it. Not, not perfectly, of course, because we're still fallen people. We still, we still wrestle with the sin that lives in our flesh, but we'll be headed on a trajectory of obedience. Sorry, that was super cute. <laughs> she just went. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but it was awesome. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm ADD, guys. Um, but in case you didn't know, uh, to paraphrase something that I heard recently, 
Our Christian walk is not about sinless perfection. It's about sinless direction, right? We ought to be headed in in a a trajectory, once again, of Christ-likeness. We ought to be walking out of sin and heading into His marvelous light. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So once again, as a Christian, you are not in this life going to see sinless perfection, but you should see a direction towards sinlessness. As we do this, as we, as we obey what He has already revealed to us in a very specific way, we ought to, to then be able to learn to identify His will in less obvious circumstances. That goes into Romans 12, verse 2. We've talked about that before. He says, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, right? His good, pleasing, and perfect will. We learn to, to seek and obey His specific will in particular situations. I think this, this is what Paul did. He, he, he apparently knew when, where, and, and what to do. And this, this truly does work, friends. I really believe this. I think the more that we strive to obey the revealed word of God that we already have, the more he's going to keep revealing stuff in the areas that seem a little bit murkier. Because we become practiced in obedience. There's a, a personification of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. If you're familiar with Proverbs, awesome book. Um, and, and this personification, they, call it, they make it out to be uh, a woman. They call her a she. But wisdom raises her voice. She cries out to anyone who will listen in, in chapter 8, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. So in other words, if, if we want to learn how God feels about a certain topic or, or what direction we ought to take when we come to a crossroads in life, then we will, be, we will become better at seeing those choices clearly as we're living in obedience to what is clear. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay, I hope it does. Um, it, it goes back to how Paul tells the Roman church, you know, I, I said this a minute ago, but, but upon offering their bodies as living sacrifices, because, it, it, you know, again, it says this is your reasonable service. This, it only makes sense based on what God has done through Christ. He says, then they will be able to test and approve what God's perfect will is. So apply this to your own context, friends. Think about this. Think about, think about this way. If there is something that you really wish God would answer for you, you know, some, some specific situation in your life that needs resolution or direction in a relationship or a life choice, here's my advice, okay? Look at your walk with a microscope and see if there's any area in your life that you are refusing to be obedient to Christ. Look at your words. Look at your life. Look at your habits. And if nothing, you know, if nothing really jumps out at you, then, then get really honest with yourself in the Lord and, and pull a David in Psalm 139. You know, ask him to search your heart and your thoughts and ask him to reveal to you anything that's hindering you from total faithfulness. I think he responds to that if we sincerely ask. You know, the more that we line up our, our own desires and attitudes to those of Christ, the more he reveals himself through the spirit that lives in us. Anyway, that, that's been my experience anyway, but I think it will be yours if it's not already. I know we all fall short. I fall short constantly, you guys. 
I'm such a messed up person. We all make mistakes. What direction are we in, though? You know, constantly I have to ask God for wisdom, but he has been faithful to me. He keeps providing wisdom when I ask for it. That's one of the promises. James 1.5. You can claim it because it's not a name it and claim it kind of thing where you just make up something. And this is an actual scripture says, if you ask, you will get. Without finding fault, God. God doesn't even look at you and say, no, I'm not going to give you wisdom. You're a dummy. No. He looks at you and he says, you want wisdom? You got it. Let's get in this last paragraph here. It says, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. You know, this paragraph, what do we see when we read through this? This is a whole, whole lot of activity. He's just got a whole lot going on here. You know, Paul's traveling from one place to the next and he's checking on the churches that he and Barnabas had planted during the first missionary journey. Now, I, I want to point out, it, it is not statistically likely that any person in this room is called to the same level of missionary work that Paul was called to. I doubt that anyone here is going to endure the same awful things that he experienced. We're probably not going to plant as many churches. We're probably not going to travel from city to city checking in on those same places. And there's comparatively few people in history that, that have. You know, they've had a, a lifestyle that, that resembles Paul's. But listen, we have different responsibilities in our own lives. Guys, we have family. We have friends. Most of us have jobs in the secular world, you know. And most of us probably have roots that are more firmly established in our local communities than a lot of traveling evangelists will have. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't put serious effort into the respective ministries that God has given to us. Whatever that ministry may be, we, we ought to be energetic in our service to the Lord. Now, I, I thought of this, this passage after sending in the PowerPoint, so I'm going to have to just say, you know what, add it to your notes, okay? Because it's not in there. But Romans 12 has another awesome, wonderful passage where Paul encourages the Christians to operate within their gifting as God has given it to them. And he gives seven examples in specific gifting. And he expresses the importance of being diligent in operating within these gifts. We won't get into the gifts today. I just want to tell you, they're right there. In, uh, there's a chunk right in the middle of Romans 12 that talks about these seven gifts. And then three, three verses down from there, he says, Do not be slothful. That's a great word. <laughs> Do not be slothful in zeal, he says, but be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Don't be cold. Be hot, serving the Lord. Y'all listen, every single person Everyone in this room has got abilities that God has given to them, both, both natural abilities and supernatural abilities. And, and, and these are to be used for service in the kingdom. That's why we have them. There is not a single Christian anywhere in the entire world that has nothing to offer back to God. Every one of us has given gifts to operate in. Every one of us. But sometimes, you know, we, we go through the week 
just feeling like we're trying to keep our heads above water. That is, that is not, friends, that is not all that God has for his people. He has a ministry laid out for each and every one of us. You know, some within the local body, but, but all of us in some way in our day to day. And if you don't know what that is for you, then you need to ask the Lord. And if the Lord doesn't answer you pretty quickly, you can come to me and I'll find you a place to serve while you're waiting. Because none of us, friends, we have no excuse to slack off in whatever ministry God has provided for us. That includes everything we do just about. That includes being a spouse. That includes being a, being a parent, being an employee, being a, a, a leader in whatever capacity. It involves being a, a sibling or a boss or a volunteer. You know, we, we should put serious effort into whatever ministry we're in because God has us there for a reason. Thanks, Mom, for that amen. From Paul, we also learn not to get derailed by comfort. Remember when uh, they wanted to stick around at Ephesus, right? I mean, they, they might have been ready to, to set him up with a parsonage, you know, and a 401 Kappa <laughs> company camel or whatever, you know. They, they might have been all ready to just make his situation primo, dreamo, but Paul said no because he knew that was not the ministry that he was called to because he'd been listening to God's voice. I mean, he understood. He knew that it wasn't time for him to settle in somewhere. He was in a groove, but he didn't want to end up in a rut. And by the way, this, this, this next part, this is as I was typing this, God kind of gave this to me. And so I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish this thought here. It occurred to me there's not much of a difference between a groove and a rut, but there is a difference. And I want to tell you what it is, okay? A rut is something that you get stuck in and then it's hard to get out of because you fit into it so well, Right? Right? It's hard to get traction when your backside is smoothed out a nice spot. Right? We have a couch that sometimes I'll get one of the kids to help pull me out of upstairs because it's so deep. And anyway, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent, but a rut is very similar to a groove, but see, a groove is different. A groove is something else. Uh, who here remembers listening to records? few of us, right? What is a groove in a record? It's where the needle goes, right? Okay. As long as the needle sits in the groove, that record makes music until it gets to the end. A groove is a rut with purpose. A groove is a rut that leads somewhere. God has created a groove for each one of us to get into and then the travel from the beginning of that record all the way to the end, living on purpose along the way and creating that beautiful music that he created us to make. And you know what happens, though, when we allow ourselves to get scratched, right? 
we repeat the same thing over and over again, the same thing over and over again, the same thing, the same thing, right? We get stuck again in a rut until we get reset into the groove. And that's what we're talking about, friends. We're talking about allowing God to place us into our groove that he created for us. We might be in a rut right now. We might have scratched our record. But God has a plan for us, every single one of us, individually and corporately. He has a plan. That's, that's how we get to the end of the record, by staying in the groove. Um, this is what Paul said to Timothy in his last letter that we, that we have. I think it's probably the last letter he wrote. He said, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Say that with me. Fulfill your ministry. God has called us to this. He may as well have written these words to every single one of us, church. Fulfill your ministry. In spite of opposition, fulfill your ministry. Finally, we see from the last sentence there what part of our ministry should be wherever we are. Paul's faithfulness here to, to God's ministry for him resulted in strengthening the disciples. And that, I believe, friends, is to be a part of our respective ministries as well. We are called to edify one another. And basically, God has called us to impart strength to one another. You know, some of my favorite, like, like short, super short passages in the Bible come out of 1 Thessalonians. Um, like, like, pray without sneezing. No, I'm kidding. Pray without ceasing. Sorry, this is my dad joke. Um, that, that's, that little verse, three words, is right there in 1 Thessalonians. There's a lot of them kind of close together, but one of them is verse 11 from chapter 5. Paul wrote this during a second missionary journey. He says this, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Those two words, well, I guess build one another out is kind of four words, but encourage means to give courage. Build one another up. Edify. That means to give strength. It's such a great ministry that we each have to give courage and give strength to each other. And the coolest part, perhaps, is, is we never have to completely run out of courage and strength to share because the ultimate source of those gifts is the inexhaustible Christ himself. You know, Paul said to the Colossians um, that he toils. The, the, the Greek word there is, is agonizomai. He strives, he agonizes toward the goal of presenting every Christian to God as fully mature in Christ. And how? He says this, struggling with all his energy. Did you catch that? Struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. It says, he powerfully works within me. Friends, that, that right there, those are the words of a man who is serious about the Lord Jesus Christ and who is not ashamed to say with a clear conscience, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. What an amazing witness the church would have if even a tithe of professing Christians tried to live like this tried to, to, to experience the meaning of those words. I want to I end with this. Our Savior, 
The God-man whom Paul tried to model his own life after made a powerful and uncompromising statement that I hope will resonate with every one of us here. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. At Golgotha, Jesus poured out his blood for us and he demands of us a response to his infinite mercy. So I ask this morning, are you serious? God, I pray for this church pray for this body of believers and just ask in Jesus' name that each person here will be serious about our faith. Jesus was so serious in what he did for us. Help us to be willing to lay down our lives and take up our cross as he commands us to do, to be faithful disciples. Help us, Lord, to, to show the world the love of God that is in Christ Jesus so that we might be a part of people changing and coming to Christ and knowing eternal life through him. We are in a world that is going to hell, but we have the, the beautiful gift of knowing from where eternal life comes. And I pray, God, that we share it with others, that we live it so that others may see it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, friends, I, I want to ask you today to show that you are serious by publicly committing yourself to Jesus Christ. You know, if you've never believed in Jesus until now, or if you've believed for years, you're, you are not given the option of keeping that to yourself. Christ commands us to acknowledge him before man and to be immersed in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we can do that today if you've never done it before. And if you have taken these steps, but you realize God is calling you to something further, whether to rededicate your life to Jesus or, or to join this local body of believers, then the Lord invites you to do so this morning as we stand and sing. So why don't you stand up? And if you simply need encouragement, or if you just need to be built up by the prayers and love of your church family, don't hesitate to come. This is the kindest challenge you're ever going to receive. Okay? You're being invited by the Lord Jesus to take something today that he is offering you, his grace.